reading in Jeremiah chapter 3, in your pew Bible that is found on page 629. And we pray this morning that God makes his word known to us. This is uh, an, an especially harsh or strong passage as we read this morning. May that be our prayer. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 2 through 10, and then we'll skip to verses 15 through 18. Reading from verse 2. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see, where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me? My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart. But in pretense, declares the Lord. Let's skip to verse 15. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and increased in the land and in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I have I gave your forefathers for a heritage. Let's take a moment and reflect on God's word. At this point we'll dismiss the kindergarten and first graders, and you will benefit from having or leaving your Bibles open to this passage. Everyone has heard this saying, a picture is worth a thousand words. It means there there are times that a picture explains something the, the richest vocabulary can't get its way around. And the Bible is full of pictures. Uh, 
worth way more than a thousand words. Pictures that are meant to help you see things that can't adequately be described. And Jesus uses pictures. He he uses pictures that, that he's hoping the world can see a reality which words alone just can't express. I am the light of the world. You immediately get a picture that that the whole globe is lit by, by some other object that stands outside of itself, and that is Christ. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. I am the good shepherd, a picture. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Each picture meant to explain a truth that just words can't quite get itself around. And some pictures run through the whole Bible. You see a picture in the beginning and it runs through the Bible. And those pictures are pictures you want to take special notice of and time to sort of find your way through the Bible. And marriage is one of those pictures. It it weaves its way through the Bible, Old Testament, New and New, like a thread. And it sort of ties up the Bible in a very neat way, just that one picture. And it actually explains to us and gives us an answer to the purpose of life itself. Just the picture of marriage. Let's look at that. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 at the creation of the world. In the beginning. And you have these magnificent layers of description. Light is called into darkness. The sky and land masses are formed. Sun and stars are taking their orbit. The earth is bursting with life. Plants and animals are beginning to fill up the earth. And in the, and the, the climax of this entire cosmic, transcendent, highly visible, creative event, the very apex of the creation is... A marriage. A marriage between Adam and Eve is at the very top of this whole creative order. It's a clue. You you don't get everything you need in Genesis 1 and 2, but it's a clue. And you're meant to read on and say, well, what? Why is it that all this incredible imagery, the very apex of this creation, is a marriage. After the fall of man, and described in Genesis chapter 3, you move through the Old Testament. And you're constantly running into God, talking to His people about their disobedience. And it's important to notice especially in the prophets, but you'll see it all through the Old Testament, the kind of language God uses to describe the disobedience of His people. Most of the time, the language is in sexual misconduct. 
You've seen it here in Jeremiah. He, he doesn't come to people and say, Hey, you're breaking my rules. He doesn't say that. He comes to his people and says, Hey, you're cheating on me. I can't, I can't believe it. We, we had this relationship. It, it was the, the culmination of the whole creative event. And you're cheating on me. Other places in the Old Testament. Isaiah, looking forward, says this. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. Isaiah 62. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so you will rejoice. God will rejoice over you. 600 years later, in Matthew 9, 600 years after Isaiah wrote his words, you remember this conversation that Jesus had with some of the people around him, they came up to him and said, John, John's disciples, John the Baptist, his disciples came and asked Jesus, how is it that we and the Pharisees are fasting, but your disciples do not fast? So John is seeing and his disciples, hey, we're fasting. And then he looks at the Pharisees and he says, and they're fasting. But the only religious group in here that doesn't seem to be fasting is Jesus and his group. And, and are we missing something? What's happening here? And then Jesus gives this very unusual comment that I, that I wonder if, if these people were listening, they were scratching their heads, or they were connecting the dots. We're not sure. This is Jesus' answer. How can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them. <laughs> you, you're calling yourself the bridegroom? You've arrived and you're sort of married to your followers? That's the picture Jesus is trying to give. And when Jesus is with his followers, there's going to be no more mourning. We don't need fasting at that point. And then you fast forward to Revelation 21, John's vision into the future. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. Beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and there will be no more mourning. At the climax of creation is a wedding. At the climax of the recreation is a wedding. 
It's, it's a picture. Marriage is a picture meant to give you a clue to the meaning of the universe in your entire life. In the Bible, we learn that God, the God of the universe, is saying to His creation, I don't just want you to be servants. I want you to be my spouse. I'm not primarily looking for obedience. I'm primarily primarily looking for intimacy. Are you interested in a relationship on that level with God Almighty? Ray Ortland puts it in this way. Marriage is not just another mutation of human social evolution. It's a divine creation intended to reveal the ultimate romance guiding all of time and eternity. Marriage is a picture. It's a picture meant for other people to look in and say, that's about as close as I can get to the ultimate romance between me and my Creator. So before I go on, I want to just pause, I want to press pause, and I want to look now at all the husbands here representing Christ in your marriage. No extra charge for this little aside, just looking at the husbands and asking you now to do some evaluation, are you loving your wives like Christ loved the church. When your neighbors, when the people that you work with, and especially when your children look at your marriage, what kind of picture are they getting of the ultimate romance? Let me say that again, because all the women here that are married want me to say it again. When people are looking at your marriage husbands, are they seeing a little picture of the ultimate romance? Not the ultimate obedience. Not just the ultimate faithfulness. Those are helpful. Those are good. But do they say, that's romance. That's what I really want. That's what I was made for. Are they seeing that? Are your children seeing that? Let's press play again. When we come to the book of Jeremiah, we're not surprised then to find that he's using the same picture. He's using the picture of a marriage. But it's a marriage that's gone sadly Bad. It's broken. And we read over and over again here in this chapter that God's people have committed a spiritual adultery. They have been faithless. God's people built for intimacy have fallen in to, to longing after the temporary charms that the world has to offer. High heels, smooth talk of prosperity, comfort, security, popularity, 
and a hundred other things have, have walked in front of God's people and they've caught their attention and now they're not looking at God any longer. They're looking at something else, some charm of the world. And Jeremiah, as a faithful preacher for 40 years, basically has one message. And you see it over and over again just in this chapter. For 40 years, he stands before a hard-headed people and he pleads with them, Return! Come back! Please! Please! Would you come back? I know you've been unfaithful. But would you turn around? Would you enter in again into this ultimate romance? Would you, would you take your eyes off the high heels and smooth talking things of the world and turn back around to the one thing that really gives you life and lasts forever? Would you return? Would you come back? This morning I wanted to actually cover more ground than I have time for. And as a good preacher, I put it in three different categories that I wanted to try to cover. Repentance, rescue, and result. What do they call that? Alliteration or something? Isn't that what it is? I don't always have those, but sometimes they fit in. And so this one fit in, and I'm, I'm going to just get to the first two. Repentance, and, and I'm only going to get to half of that. And the rescue. We might get to the next next week or we might move on. But we'll get back to it, I'm sure, in the Bible because a lot of these things are the same. So to today, I want us to think about repentance primarily and then the rescue. Jeremiah points ahead to a rescue that now we can see for ourselves. Jeremiah calling for the people to return come back, turn around. He looks at his people and he can identify that some of them are fakes. Oh, you look like you turned around, but you're just faking it. And so he's looking at those people and saying, don't be a fake. Don't try to fake me out. God says in in chapter 3, verse 5, Behold, I can see. Maybe Jeremiah can't see everybody who's a fake, but God is speaking in verse 5. Behold, that's a big biblical word. Behold, pay attention. I can see if you are faking it. And he's trying to warn his people, don't turn around after God and like a fake. And he gives us two examples. Chapter 3, verse 3 and 5, and then again in chapter 10. So let's look at that. Lift up your eyes to the barren heights, this is verse 2, and see where have you not been ravished. You've gone after other lovers. You're sitting on the side of the, the street waiting for anybody to come along. Therefore, verse 3, the showers have been withheld. It's not raining. And the spring rain has not come. Yet you have a forehead of a whore. And you refuse to be ashamed. And then listen to this. Have you not just called to me? My father. You are my friend. You won't be angry forever. You you hear what's happening? 
The people of God have pursued other, other lovers. They still are hard-headed and hard-hearted. And Jeremiah has called for them to turn around. And what they've done is they've assessed their situation and said, you know, the situation isn't going too well down here. We need some rain because we need some food. And so since it's not working too well, and this one right now isn't working all that well, well, we'll just turn back to God and say, my father, my friend. When you go to Haiti, there's some really neat things about Haiti. People are very friendly. But they're never more friendly than when you're at the airport. You get off the plane, you get your luggage. Those who've been to Haiti remember what this feels like. And you sort of pass through customs, and you're fairly secluded uh, in that whole process. But you turn around a corner to go out of just a very small doorway, and when you, when you go through the doorway, it's just a sea of faces. Every one of them saying this to the white American. My friend! My friend, I never knew I had so many Haitian friends. They're all there waiting for me to get off the airplane. They're all wanting to help me get my luggage, even though I'm able to carry my luggage to wherever I'm going. They're all coming up beside of me. They're all saying the same thing. My friend, my friend, my friend. Now, do they want a relationship with me? No. They want my things. They don't really care that much about me, but they do think I have something that if they're friendly, then they might be able to get those things. Verse 10. Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. They're they're pretending to turn around. Their turnaround is a sham. They were thinking that if they sort of kept the external part of the law, that they wouldn't also have to turn over their heart. If I just keep those things in place, if I do those things, then I'm going to get my reward in the end. They're really trying to serve the Lord, but they're not really interested in being in love with the Lord. It's a sham. It's a fake. They're really still after God's stuff. I don't think it was anyone here. I I was at a conference this week, and I I had a conversation with somebody at that conference. But if it really was here, since my mind sometimes can't remember it all, I'll give you credit next week if this was your story. But I think it was somebody else's story. And the person said, I took my family out to eat. I have young children. And my son decided while we were at the restaurant, it would be best for him to stand up in the booth while he ate. Now, this is generally a very pleasant event for a parent who's trying to eat a very nice dinner, now having to work on their son who would rather stand and eat. When I took my family out to eat and I had a son who did this, he didn't want to stand on the bench. He wanted to get underneath the table and crawl around. And I can tell you his mother was not happy about this event. And it caused a lot of indigestion in our family. Get out from underneath the table. The food is up here. But this parent had a son who decided wanted to stand in the booth. 
Son, please sit down. Two or three pleadings, and you quickly get to bribery. I mean, just almost immediately. If you sit down, you get ice cream at the end of the meal. So they just kept eating towards the end of the meal. Son starts getting closer to sitting in the booth. Finally sits down. People finish their meal, ice cream coming to the table. One ice cream missing. Not in front of the son. He very astutely realizes, I do not have any ice cream in front of me at this moment. And protests very loudly, where's my ice cream? I sat down. To which the father said, yes, but in your heart you are still standing. You see what's happening here? If I just keep the external pieces of the law, then I will demand of God that He gives me ice cream. Two questions. Anyone here calling Jesus their friend in order to get Jesus' things? You think of Jesus like a ticket. I've got Jesus. I've got my ticket. Since I have Jesus, then I get to see my mother again in heaven. I, I want to see my mother again in heaven. And what guarantees me that is my ticket. I got my ticket. I got my ticket. And so I'm going to avoid suffering and hell. I really don't want to suffer. Not interested in, sounds hot. So I got my ticket. I'm holding on to my ticket. Going to avoid hell. Got my ticket so that I will have a new body. Won't have any aches or pains. No more sickness. No more crying. Got my ticket. Got my ticket to a room with a view. Got my ticket to the ultimate wave. Got my ticket to breaking par one day. I, I got my ticket for something else. Everybody wants those things. There isn't a person on the planet who doesn't want that. But the question is, not do you want those things. Do you really want Jesus? Jesus isn't just the ticket. He's the ticket and the destination. Jesus isn't just the ticket. He's the ticket to the treasure of himself. The most glorious thing you could ever get is Jesus, not his things. The gospel is good news. And the good news is that you get Jesus. 
Jesus has provided a way at infinite cost to himself and no cost to you to get back into a right relationship so that you might grab hold of him as your ticket to get to the destination, which is Jesus Christ. Or, you need to be honest with yourself, are you holding on to Jesus as your ticket to other things. If you are, Jeremiah is telling you and me, you're faking it. Second question. I wonder who is here sitting in the pew, but standing up in your heart. I mean, you're here, you're in church. You're supposed to go to church. So I come to church. This is as good as any of them. It's convenient. I don't mind listening to the preacher. Singing's all right. So I'm coming. I'm praying. Occasionally, I'm reading my Bible. I am also trying to love my enemies. I'm trying to do all those things. But here's my question. If you peeled back the layers of all of that spiritual obedience, is what underneath it this? God better come through. I'm praying, I'm doing all these things, and he better give me the ice cream in the end. Peel back the layers. Is that what is underneath all of that? Are you really just obediently sitting here and praying and just demanding at the end, God, give me the ice cream? You're kind of like a puppeteer. It's another picture. You're pulling on the strings of obedience to get God to act the way you want him to act. I pray, I go to church, I'm nice to my neighbor. God has got now to do whatever I'm asking him to do. Is that underneath your spiritual layers? Do you know? Jeremiah is pleading with his people because it's so easy to be a fake. Sometimes you're not even aware that you're a fake. And so he's helping his people ask these questions. And when I get to this point in my sermon preparation, I get uncomfortable. I'm sitting at my desk. This passage is uncovering very hard things in my own life. I'm peeling back the layers of my own soul. And I'm just thinking... I'm thinking at times that 
that when ministry isn't going well, how easy it is for your pastor to sit there and say, God, I am busting my rear end here for you. I'm trying to get your work done and you're not coming through. And I stop. And my heart's been exposed to my motives. God, I'm pulling all the right chains. And I'm demanding that you must act in a certain way. And when your ways aren't my ways, God, what I would like for you to do is to take up your cross and follow after me. That's what I would really like for you to do. And it's very very ugly underneath those spiritual layers. If you're honest enough to peel those back and ask yourself what's at the bottom of your obedience to Christ. I reached these points in my sermon and I think I just should reword these questions. I mean, they're too hard. They're exposing to me. And I sit there and I'm looking for a rescuer. I'm looking for something outside of myself. And Jeremiah points to the rescue. Verse 15 through 18. So let's look at that. One day, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to their mind or be remembered or missed, and it shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord And all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. No longer, no longer shall they stubbornly follow their own evil heart. The Ark of the Covenant sits in the temple. It's a symbol of God's meeting place with man. Everyone that Jeremiah was talking to would understand that. He's in Judah. The capital of Judah is Jerusalem. The center point, the the thing that's built on the mountain at the very top of Jerusalem is the Temple Mount that sits the temple. And at the very center of the temple, in a perfect cube, is a place called the Holy of Holies. And in that cube is the Ark of the Covenant, which contains at least the Law, the Ten Commandments. And once a year, the priest would enter in on the Day of Atonement, atoning for his own sins and all the sins of the people symbolically by entering into this perfectly shaped cubicle place. And he would take with him the blood of a perfect sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the lid 
called the mercy seat, the place in which God is going to descend and sit and judge his people according to the law. And the priest walks in and he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat so that when God comes down, he sees the blood of the perfect sacrifice and his judgment moves away from lawbreakers like you and I. That's the picture. God's coming down. He's going to intersect your life. He's going to judge you according to the law. And you know in your heart, you're a lawbreaker. You need something in between you and God. And what that is, is the blood of a perfect sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, you see a shadow of what's going to happen in the reality of the New Testament. There will be a day that people will no longer look for the Ark of the Covenant. And I don't think Jeremiah's people really understood what that day must have looked like. But God is just telling Jeremiah, Jeremiah, don't worry about you understanding this. It's coming. You just write it down. I need you to write it down and say it. 600 years after Jeremiah, a 30-year-old Jewish rabbi named Jesus comes to the temple and makes this claim, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. Now, this is the ultimate meeting place between God and man. And a 30-year-old Jewish rabbi comes in and says, you know, we can just get rid of this place. We don't need the temple anymore. What? How are we going to meet our Lord? What's the meeting place if it's not the temple? And Jesus says, when I raise again from, in three days, I'm the new temple. Anyone who wants to come to God the Father will now come to the mercy seat of Jesus Christ. And His perfect blood shed on the cross now stands between lawbreakers and a holy and just God. And so when we say we stand at the foot of the cross, we stand underneath the cross, understand the picture. God's right judgment coming down to judge mankind according to his own law. We're all shaking in our boots if there's not something in between. And Jesus Christ comes as the perfect sacrifice and he gives his blood. And so that God's wrath is absorbed by Jesus Christ. And we gratefully stand under this tremendous shield of the cross. And now that he has absorbed our sin, we can now miraculously, stunningly be his lover. Not just a servant, but a spouse. Not just being obedient, but being intimate with God.
Revelation 21. Come. This is now John the Apostle looking into some future date still in front of us. Come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away into the spirit, in the Spirit to a great high mountain. He showed me the holy city. Listen, the city lies like a perfect square. Its length, width, and height are equal. John is looking at a city, and this city, very unusually, is formed like a perfect cube. Now, what are you supposed to be thinking now? This is it. This is the place all of human history is waiting on. This perfect place. And what's going to be in the place? I'm going to be in the place. And who else is going to be in the place? The treasure is going to be in the place. Christ is going to be in the place. This is the place we're meant to be. It's the place everybody should be wanting to get into. And John goes on. I saw no temple in the city. Of course you didn't see a temple, John. It was Jesus, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or a moon, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Is your name in that book? Is it? Are you or are you a fake? See, now is the time to try to get to the bottom of that. Do not wait until this day. Christ came for fakes. He did not come for perfect people. Praise the Lord. That as somebody who still is struggling, I have completely committed my life to stand underneath the blood of the Lord. I am not depending on my own genuine faith to get me to heaven. I am so glad I'm not depending on that. I am depending on Christ's faith, not my faith. Is your name in that book? Have you said, I am a, I'm the biggest fake here? I know it. I don't want to pretend anymore. I just want to admit I'm a fake. And I must have a perfect sacrifice to come between my fakeness and the reality of God. And when you admit that, your name gets written in a book. And one day, no detestable things. No more mourning. 
And yes, you get all the things. But at the top of that is the only thing that counts. Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, there are some transcendent realities about your word. Some, some things so big that we get lost in the minutiae of the details of our life that we don't see a perfectly shaped cubed city that is a picture of a place that we can have our name written in and will arrive one day through those gates with no more mourning. You have come as a lover. And you are pursuing people who have cheated on you. Prostitutes can and are welcome at the foot of the cross. And we're all spiritually prostitutes. And I pray now for these people, both in the next couple of minutes, the next few days, at some point, they would peel back, look at the very center of their motives, trust in you alone, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.